I work on pretty large complex projects and I realized that we didn't have a lot of like common language around some of the um, business needs that our clients had when, as it related to workspace. You know, um, we would start with a solution. We talk about adaptability, we talk about flexibility, but we didn't have a framework to kind of hang uh, investment in those things on. Welcome to the Wonder Podcast. This is Cece, be your host, and I'm here with another one of our 2020 Wonder Grant Award teams. I'd like to give you just that bit of information about the Wonder Grant, which is the Wonder Grant supports exploration and research that impacts environments where work, innovation, healing, and learning take place. And we have given out nine Wonder Grants over the past two years. Today, we're talking with Nash Hurley and Josh Emig, and I'd like them to introduce themselves and give a brief overview of the topic title. I'm Nash uh, Hurley. I'm an architect. Um, I've known Josh for the better part of two decades. He and I met in New York working for um, kind of a standard core and shell architecture firm. Um, but since we've gone on and found ourselves working in workspace design um, in different capacities. Josh, a little bit more on the product end and me on, on the strategy and product side of things. Um, the, you know, the title of our grant, um, Network Science Applied to Workspace, um, over the course of the, um, of the grant really probably became more uh, workspace as, as a link and thinking about workspace as a, um, a link and a network of production. Um, so I don't know, CCB, if you want me to go into why we chose that particular topic or if you want me to unpack that a little bit further. I'm going to have Josh introduce himself and then I'm going to ask you to unpack that a little bit further. Okay. Hey, I'm Josh Nemig. Um, as uh, Nash mentioned, we've been friends for quite a long time and, and, and former colleagues and uh, we started talking last year before the pandemic about some ideas that we, we wanted to explore together. Uh, at the time, I, I was working at, uh, as a product director, working on software at WeWork, where I was uh, uh, the, also the head of research and development prior, prior to the product development work that I did. Um, and we just uh, had a similar line of thinking just in, in terms of where we saw the opportunities for um, work and the future of work in cities and, and the ideas that we thought would be, you know, that would sh shed light and, and help us to uh, flesh out some clear, uh, let's say, let's say clarify our, our thinking on those topics uh, by using the network, the lens of, of networks. So, so you've explained why you chose the research topic, but can you explain what did you hope to accomplish? through this study? I mean, for, for my part, I think that, you know, my hopes were pretty simple. Um, one, like I said, I, I, I wanted to clarify my own thinking on the future of work in cities. Um, these are topics that, that were very um, near and dear to a lot of the work that, that I did at WeWork. Um, and even prior to that, uh, working with the uh, some of the workplace designers and some of the technologies that I uh, that we develop at, at Perkins and Will, 
Um, and so it, it was just kind of an opportunity to, to clarify that. Uh, obviously, a lot of things have changed in the world, and, and, and last, last year was, was kind of a doozy. So um, there was that. And then, you know, also, I think we just wanted to open a dialogue with a broader community and introduce some concepts uh, with which many design practitioners might not be as familiar. I mean, net, network science is, we all live and participate in, in networks every single day, but um, understanding the uh, behavior of networks is, you know, potentially esoteric to um, the design community. And then lastly, I think for me, I just wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to, to gain some depth in an area of knowledge in, in which I had an interest, um, but, but a rather cursory understanding. Yeah, I, I've, um, all that makes sense to me. I, I think also for me, I was looking for like a really, for a, like a tool and some better language for um, engaging with large project teams. I work on pretty large complex projects and I realized that we didn't have a lot of like common language around some of the um, business needs that our clients had when, as it related to workspace, you know, um, we would start with a solution. We talk about adaptability, we talk about flexibility, but we didn't have a framework to kind of hang uh, investment in those things on. Um, so it got kind of a value, a lot of decisions get evaluated against um, uh, potentially like older models of business. Um, and, and I, and I was looking to have uh, a framework that could potentially unify some of the language between um, economics and workspace um, to have more business focused decisions around um, investment in workspace. Mm -hmm. So I am going to point out uh, for anyone listening that an abstract of this particular project topic is available on the One Workplace website, as well as the full research paper. And when you, if you have time to look at it, it is organized extremely effectively. And I'm going to give you kudos for that, um, gentlemen, because it is a simplistic approach to an incredibly complex topic, the way that you have broken it down. So I kind of wanted to ask that question about, um, for you working together remotely, how did that, what form did your research take? Uh, well, I mean, we, we really executed the research almost <clears throat> it pretty much in parallel to the way that the... Uh, the resulting deliverables were structured in which that we, we did um, a literature review uh, like you do. And we, we read a lot of books and um, did a lot of studying and shared a lot of papers and did a lot of uh, discussion about that and sort of formulating some early ideas about how this theory might be applied to, to, to workplace. Um, we reached out. The second thing we did was uh, case studies with, uh, or sorry, not case studies, but uh, interviewing uh, some subject matter experts. So we, we reached out to a few people that worked in hospitality, a few others that were um, sort of prominent figures in uh, organizational network analysis, like Ben Weber at Humanize. Um, we reached out to uh, Cesar Hidalgo, uh, who, who wrote a great book a few years back called uh, Why Information Grows and, and uses um, both a framework of a sort of a combined framework of, of physics, economics, and, and network science to to describe the way that that economies work, um, which is a fascinating book. And so we we had a chance to interview him, uh, and then we went on to do a, a much more in depth uh, case study uh, with the Wikimedia Foundation. 
And so, which really sort of took a lot of the things that we had synthesized through the literature review and learned from our subject matters and, and, and sought to sort of use them as a lens to understand the way that that particular distributed organization was functioning. I think that uh, Hildago's book about why information grows is really uh, foundational for, for advancing my thinking. Um, really, you know, some of the principles in there around transaction cost theory and what that means to, um, for spaces of work. A lot of his uh, focus was more on like manufacturing spaces, but what was really interesting about the network science is that it could apply to, to both. Um, uh, and I think um, the other thing just to point out that like came to mind as Josh was talking um, is, a, is how our research actually flowed upon, you know, our, our own connections, right? So we reached out to subject matter experts that we had known from past projects. We happened to have done a project for the Wikimedia Foundation who helps create the infrastructure for the production of Wikipedia. And so our, our own research was able to um, piggyback onto the connections that we had in the industry. Um, and so it, it is kind of like, it's biased, right? Like we, we didn't just have research in the abstract, like where we got traction and where we were, I think, had like the greater insights were based upon trusted relationships that we already had going into this research project. Would it, well, it, it's a leading question. <laughs> what, what, what might have happened uh, if you had used other organizations as case studies, do you think, if you had time? Yeah, so we talked about that. So would, um, the production of Wikipedia, and we tried to view it, uh, we looked at it from the product back to the organization. So Wiki, the Wikimedia Foundation is the nonprofit that helps build the infrastructure that allows for, for Wikipedia to be produced. But we actually did a, um, a backwards analysis looking at like, well, how is Wikipedia produced? What organizations, what, how does the network work? We, the other option that we had looked at was looking, potentially looking at a large retail company where there's a physical product. And that has a completely, uh, our hypothesis was that that would have a completely different set of uh, insights that would come out of it from a wholly digital project like, um, like the production of Wikipedia. So, um, you know, the product uh, has a big, the, the medium of the product has a big influence on what the network is. And then consequently, what the workspace is that supports that network. So I want to ask that question about the, the actual structure of networks, because you spend a lot of time in your, in your research uh, describing them and then ultimately may have placing, I don't know that placing a value, but understanding them more effectively. I'm sorry, could you clarify what the specific, specific question was? Uh, more the um, the description. If we have folks that are listening that understand some level of network um, theory, sure. but not to any greater degree, how would you how would you help define that uh, the elements of it so that people yeah. could start making the link between the theory and the place? Got it. Yeah. So so probably the the, the simplest definition of a uh, of a network is is really it's it's a uh, um, a series of uh, entities or, or objects or people that have connections among them. Um, and it seems like a very, very simplistic definition, but 
if you think about, you know, at, at this point, maybe like the most um, accessible and maybe sort of canonical kind of model of a network might be something like Facebook that, that most people would really kind of be familiar with. And, and everybody understands when they're on Facebook that they're connected to certain people and not connected to other people and that, they're, that their friends are connected to a different um, uh, set of people than they're connected to. And, and overall, this, this, this um, structure of connections and what we call nodes um, forms the network. And so it's really sort of taking that idea and, and thinking about um, the networks that inform the production of, of the things, the, the products that we create and, and organiza organizations um, really, really function as networks. And so that, that was the sort of jumping off point for us. Um, I think we really sort of landed on a few kind of key aspects and, and it's, a, it's a broad and very, very deep um, area of study and, and um, there's a lot of people out there that have PhDs in it. So, so we don't really profess to be, to, to really be able to address it at that level of, of nuance. But a few of the things that we found um, particularly important for organizations and the way that, that workspace impacts organizations are both <clears throat> the structure and strength of the connections, um, the, 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 the things or the information that flows across those connections, which I think Nash will probably elaborate on a little bit, um, is, as well as the levels of, of trust and what we would call social capital that is kind of embodied um, within those networks, um, all have you know, really big impacts on the outcomes that, a, that an organization is, is able to create. Yeah, Boss? well, you know, I, I think, sorry, so every once in a while my brain can drift a bit, but what, one of the things that came up to me was an image that we saw over and over again over the last 30 years of research on this topic and, and that there was just different names applied to it. When it comes to thinking about networks and like a launching off point, there, there are kind of like three general structures of centralized, decentralized, or you know, um, some sort of mesh network there's many different names for what those things are, but they're all networks of production. Um, and why I think that that's important is that in common or like a lot of current language right now, I find that when people talk about networks, they're actually talking about flat organizations. They're talking about not hierarchy, um, but there's a version of, of a network that's a, a centralized network that's just a hierarchical network. And it has certain properties and certain kinds of cultures and behaviors that go along with it, typically associated with high transaction costs. Um, but then if there's um, uh, entities like, um, like your, if you're trying to deal with sea uh, level rise and you're you know, concerned about that the, uh, network dealing with something that has a really high risk, but potentially low transaction costs might take on more of like a, a, a mesh framework. So I guess the part of it for me is that, that I think there can be a little bit of a tendency to, for the people that are interested in networks to think about flat networks and things that don't have high transaction costs where, or, or high trust networks to build on what Josh was saying. Um, and I think there's actually a, li a little bit more of a broader perspective that there's like a range of network structures and it really depends on the cost of transmitting things ac across the connections. Does that make sense to you, CCB? It does make sense. It does make sense to me. It, the, the, 
Um, I think the connection that I would like you to make for the architecture design community sitting here thinking about this is uh, what value did you determine understanding this has to developing more effective environments for their organ the organizations that they're supporting? Yeah. So, um, you know, Josh, I'll take a pass at that, at this. I mean, I think like a really important thing for me was thinking about the flows that define that end product. Um, so I don't think that, you know, obviously there's always a range of workplace design solutions from architecture down to furniture design. Um, but if you start from the product and you think about the flows that make that product possible, when they're, when they're all digital flows, um, the um, pressure for co-location is very different from when there's a physical component to, um, to the production of that end product. Um, and I think that can come up in surprising ways. A lot of us can look to Facebook and to Google and other companies like that that have uh, a bias towards a digital product and we can look to emulate their workspaces. But I think if, as soon as there's a physical component in the production of that end product, uh, workspace takes on a very different meaning. So I think that that's like a non-trivial thing of if you have a digital product, you know, or if you have a physical product or physical component to a digital product, looking at um, examples of uh, workspaces that are designed for digital product production might not be that helpful to you. So I think there's that. And then I think the other part that is there goes into what Josh was talking about in terms of um, trust um, and, and the qualities of links. Um, you know, we, none of us make something by ourselves. We always make it as part of some sort of network of production, whether it's five people or 500 people. But if you're, if you're operating in a culture that happens to have a low trust, um, it's a low trust environment. And that just happens sometimes. Um, once you're there, um, you know, having a fully like distributed organization, it's not going to make that much sense. Um, the most extreme example of this that you know we came up with just in terms of anecdotally when we we're thinking about this was you know Washington DC you know um, there's a value to having physical presence because you're worried about what people are going to say when they're not on camera or they're you know you you want to make sure that your your ideas are heard and your your voice is recognized um, and um, I think that us getting to talking about whether or not people have a low trust or high trust culture earlier in the design process would really help us design better spaces for them, you know, because you can, you can design a great space, I think, for a low trust culture. I think telling everybody that they have a high trust culture and they should be okay with it might lead to some unwanted outcomes. So, sorry, Josh, that might've been too much coffee coming through the- No, that's fine. I, I wanted to add another example and I found this, and I, I recognize this is a, it's a difficult subject to try to talk about on a podcast without visuals because it's a subject that you have to use the language of the of mm -hmm. the networks in order to talk about it, but then you have to define all those define all those terms. So it's difficult. Um, one of the one of the sort of most interesting things I think that that was in our Wikipedia case study had to do with um, the way that they approached um, what we called convening or gathering. And they have different cadences of where they would bring together. And remember, this is an organization that is uh, that was distributed prior to the pandemic. And a lot of the a lot of the 
the, the patterns that we studied were actually preceded the pandemic as well. And so it just so happened that a lot of other uh, organizations got to experience this firsthand over the last year, but they, they were doing it prior. And so if you think about uh, network scientists think a lot about the way that um, networks affect people's behaviors and the way that information flows in a network. And so th there's, there's two things that happen. Um, one is there's a, there's a thing called a weak link, which is uh, what you would refer to as in, in colloquially, probably as an acquaintance. This is somebody that you're not, you're not really in their social group, but you know them, right? So you, you can sort of have, there's a communication pathway there, but you're not fully embedded in that group. The, the, the opposite of that would be a strong link or a click, you know, the, where everybody's very, very tightly oriented. And so, in, in, from a network perspective, weak links are very, very good for, um, for the, basically the diffusion of information. So information travels extraordinarily fast through networks that have a lot of weak links. And this is what we call virality and a lot of things that happen on the internet happen in this way because things are just shared, right? When it comes to the adoption or the, the, or, or, or the kind of, yeah, the adoption of new types of um, innovations or new types of behaviors, that gets reinforced through clicks and strong links. And so what was really interesting in the case study was that you found that um, the, the patterns of convening or gathering that, that this organization had basically tried to accomplish these two things. And so you get these very tight uh, groupings where, where, the, uh, where teams are coming together and they're just kind of, they're, they're kind of reinforcing their behaviors and they're kind of learning new things. And you have those tight bonds that allow that to happen. And then you have other aspects of these events that are really about, it's like the social hour. And, and, and there's a very good reason to have a social hour and that's to create the weak links and dis diffuse information throughout the organization. And so what was really interesting about that is you had this example of a space, a physical space, playing a very strategic role um, in the network of bringing people together for, for the purposes of reinforcement on the one hand in terms of strong links and also diffusion, diffusion on the other in the case of weak links. And, and I, I found that particularly informative and, and salient um, in, in the research that we did. And the, the uh, just to build on what Josh is saying, I think the size of those groups was really, um, really interesting, you know, kind of like the, the 15 person and under um, for creating those strong links. And so as the group size got larger, um, the space is changing and the types of um, links and connection outcomes are different. So it, it's pretty fascinating if you think about the um, the results and the, um, the data that you've come up with through, through study and applying that onto some of the actual uh, physical presences that we see in some of these organizations that you're talking about. For example, uh, a Facebook campus that has, you know, a football field size, single level uh, environment with lots of perhaps the smaller uh, clicks working together. However, you know, it, it, is that is that intentional or is that um, serendipitous? I think that it's both. I, I mean, not to not to dodge the question, but I mean, I think that we we arrive through these things 
that we, we arrive at these things because people do the things that they work and and you know there's a lot of there's kind of a whole history of the study of uh, social groupings and in sociology and we sort of tend to kind of arrive back at these same places where we have optimal team sizes of about eight people and we have Dunbar's number that communities of about 150 people seem to be about right. Um, and so I, I think that what what this, um, I, so in, in a way it's, it's, not, it's serendipitous, but it's not because, I mean, in some cases there might be some intentionality behind it, but the intentionality is just sort of like the optimi optimizing the behaviors of the, the group over time towards certain outcomes. And I, and I think that the, what the language of networks does is it gives us a way to talk about it. It gives us a, a sort of useful abstraction to, to tame some of the complexity that, that's involved in those, um, in those systems. Well, yeah, I, I think one of the things that was interesting to me that thinking about the like a overlap between that Facebook example and the Wikipedia production model is um, is the the need to continuously own a space. You know, so the the production of Wikipedia had a really clear cadence on a quarterly cycle of coming together of their teams to work on on the harder problems and build those stronger bonds that Josh was talking about. Um, I think it's interesting in the kind of, like we're just coming out of this era of, you know, what I would frame in my head is like the cult of the large floor plate. You know, the bigger the floor plate, the better, it would create more opportunity. Um, but I think there's this other component to that, which is like, uh, you know, owning your space the whole time or how important it is to have like a, a permanent spot in, a, in, in that kind of sea of a floor plate versus having um, a group to go to. So there's also been um, this past year with all of the upheaval and the you know immediate dispersal of individuals from location to their own individual spaces. Um, the conversation about is it hub and spokes for you know the real estate strategy? Is it is the does the campus real estate strategy still have any merit? Um, and then the idea of the remote hybrid work environment, which we're probably going to see some of, though perhaps not as much as we thought, and it just keeps changing on a daily basis. So I'm wondering, um, thinking of the, the, it, the results that you have, or the, the amount of information that you have compiled, where do you see that, um, that application in, in helping build real estate strategies? Yeah, I mean, for my part, I do think that like I would always go back to the product. I think it's strange that we don't have more differentiation of strategies based upon the nature of the product, right? Like whether it's hub and spoke or fully centralized or fully distributed, I think it's a I think it comes back to transaction costs. Does does space reduce the transaction costs in the production of that product, whether it's a digital product or physical um, physical product or a combination, as most products are? So I think if you understand the product and you understand the flows that are required to make that product, you understand where there are heavy transaction costs. I think at that moment, so just a few things to put those things in place, then I think you can start to evaluate different real estate strategies. I, I think it's interesting that we're not hearing the product production first and what kind of space supports that as a secondary thing. Um, and people are looking you know, for a spatial strategy um, as a lead. 
Um, I think the other thing that's that was like a really super insightful thing that Ben Waver said in one of our subject matter interviews with him, and, and Josh, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but it was this idea that in this last year of, of being, um, you know, more people being distributed um, and working in distributed fashion, that some com companies might not be aware that they've been spending down their social capital, um, like within their organizations, and you know whether there's different terms for it, whether it's burnout or lack of engagement, but there's that there's a certain repository of, of, of within the network of, of social capital that might have been being used up this last year, and that needs to be replenished in some way. So those were, so it's quite, one's a question of about flows, and the other one's a question of, of the battery, how much social capital you have embedded in your, your own uh, uh, company's culture. And I think that yeah. those are very different workspaces. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that I, I mean I, I mean you kind it kind of hits on I I think a lot of our intention for for doing this is that, you know it, it it's sort of working in a hybrid way or being being a distributed organization is is there's a lot more to it than just saying that and there's a lot more to it than just saying like oh well just come to the office three days a week and now we're hybrid like it it I, I think the important thing you know, whether it's like Nash said, working from your product backwards and figuring out what, what works the best or, or working for starting with your, with your people and the nature of the teams and their connectedness and the information that needs to flow, flow between them and start to optimize for that. I mean, you, you can come up with a strategy to work in, in any way. Um, it, it just so happens that physical space, you know, like we, as we found, that actually does a lot of work like in terms of um, its influence on the network and, um, and in the connections among people. But, but it's also, um, we've also seen that it's, it's pretty important that people have, um, you know, that work from anywhere type policies uh, has had an important impact in terms of productivity and engagement and well-being. Um, and, and they can actually start to drain the social capital battery, but there's actually, there's strategies that you can take to get the bust of both worlds where you're capturing those um, benefits while, while also sort of maintaining um, those connections and strengthening them. So I, I think that, um, yeah, I just think there's more to it than that, and it takes a it takes a lot of honesty, and it takes a hard uh, takes a hard look at your organization organization to start to kind of to dig into those things. And you just have to start asking asking the right questions. The um, the thing that the I would say the notion that strikes me is how just to your point, how often are people having these types of conversations? Is it something that you know we we you think we will see more of? Um, by virtue of giving some form of language around it to, you know, the design community, does that uh, empower them to, you know, kind of prompt more of those conversations? It's an interesting piece to think about this research and, and where it will go. Yeah, I mean, I hope so, because I, I, I think that, I, I mean, I sort of make this joke, but there, there, there are, you know, different types of cultures that that need different types of working arrangements. And so you see a lot of tech companies that have swung heavily toward like remote first at this point, and they, and they say they're never going back. Um, we've also seen a lot from the government finance and real estate sectors that are, that are gung-ho to get back in the office. Um, and, uh, and, and you've also probably seen a lot of 
uh, stuff in the media or a lot of research out there that, that indicates that on the whole, um, that the majority of people are looking for some sort of choice and some sort of flexibility in terms of where they work and when and how they work. And so I, I think that sort of behooves companies, CEOs, and you know the people who run these organizations to to ask these questions. I think they have to do it if they want to make if they want to retain the talent that they have. Yeah. Nash, did you have something else you wanted to say? No, I think I think on that topic, in terms of where this goes, I, I mean, I ultimately it comes down to a belief. I believe space is very honest. So a lot of the unproductive frictions that we were seeing in workspace design towards the end of the last business cycle, in terms of like space is not adapting quick enough to companies' evolving needs. I mean, I can't tell you how I heard that from pretty much anybody, uh, any client I would talk to as if it was something new. And I think that those kinds of systematic issues are the results of two different networks not being in tune with each other. So, you know, building design and building production has always been a, a process. You know, it's not, it isn't, we refer to it as a product, but it is a process, but it's time step and it's, um, it's Hertz regulation I think is out of step with the speed of growth of a lot of modern businesses. Um, and so I think that that's like kind of like the meta thing that this um, research gives people some language around of getting those, getting those two systems to get some standards of interface. And then I think that there's some really um, honest conversations for leaders in organizations to have around like what kind of culture do they actually have? Not the kind of culture they feel like they should have emulating another company what kind of culture do they have? What is their work product? You know, do, do they have to take a physical picture of um, iPhones? You know, you know, because they're, you know, that's a that's a physical component. Well, that's going to make sense, you know, for people to have a studio to shoot that iPhone in. Um, and so, and I think you know, like as designers, we I think a lot of us have been feeling because you know, like, where's our materials library? You know, um, I got to get at that. Um, so. Uh, where that's coming to for me is I think, you know, if you create the, the landscape that there's maybe three general forms of networks of centralized and then uh, decentralized and then fully distributed versions, those are all perfectly valid corporate structures based upon, I would say, fundamentally can be understood as transaction costs. And there's totally different um, workspaces that support each of those types of networks of production. When somebody that has a centralized hierarchical structure feels like their organization should be moving to be more flatter and organizational, like a flatter organization, and they ask for that kind of workspace, maybe, maybe it's a strategic tool to bring about change, but that friction should be intentional as opposed to uh, a surprising outcome of bringing those two worlds together. I think the other thing I think the other thing that we see happening is that, you know, aside from whatever strategy a company might adopt, there's actually a, we're, we're, we're starting to build the infrastructure for this now. So you see like a lot of new companies out there um, like, like Daybase and others that are, that are, that are actually starting to try to provide um, the means for, for companies to be more distributed. 
Um, and I just, I just happen to know them, but there, there's, there's others that are doing similar things. And so you see co-working popping up in, in, um, you know, suburbs and a little bit more far flung places. And so again, I, I think that a lot of these things will, will kind of evolve in parallel that companies will be able to evolve their thinking uh, about how their, their people work best. And, and we're also seeing a lot of um, more opportunity, you know, whereas if you go back to, to, to what Nash termed, I think the, uh, I forget what he said it about the large flint send the, the, the sort of dominant, the dominance of the large central, the large centralized floor plate, you know, a few years ago you had, we work and, 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 and a lot of kind of localized um, co-working companies, but the, the opportunities weren't really there. And so now the kind of, you see real estate starting to evolve in this direction as well. And I, and I think it's going to, it's going to play out over, over a longer period of time. I don't think that, you know, we're going to snap into anything that's decisive by, you know, the third quarter of this year. It's going to, it's going to take a little longer than that. The, um, the, the build I would have on what Josh was saying, I think is an interesting reference is I think it's from 1930. Is that right, Josh? The Coase's theory of the firm. Um, but it looks at transaction costs and, and why firms exist. And, you know, at the time it was, you know, explaining a lot of manufacturing tendencies of when do you use it makes sense to have manufacturing under one roof and when does it make sense to buy things from the market? And I think what's going on, you know, in the wake of let's call it red one of the WeWork era and there's the, the new more of all offerings that are coming on is the marketplace is, is, is advancing. It's more competitive. So what, um, what you can get from the market versus what you have to hold in in-house through your own facilities team is really different. It is not 10 years ago and it's certainly not 20 years ago. And so I, you know, if I can go out into the marketplace and, and get a workspace, I've now, I now have options. I don't have to make, I don't have to, to go to the manufacturing. I don't have to have the forge inside my place. I can just buy a finished part. And I think that there's going to, that's kind of exciting for me looking to the future um, and what it means for workplace designers is that maybe the thing that we're, designing and working on is not the widget you can go buy out there um, in the marketplace. It's something that's really specialized in particular to the organization, something that is less co less commodified version of space. Wow. Okay, Josh and Nash, you have given us uh, an enormous amount to think about, and I'm going to also applaud your ability to uh, describe things uh, that have so much more theory attached to them in a fairly concrete way so that I think most people will be able to understand. Um, thank you again for your time. We are so grateful that you participated in the Wonder Grant. And I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs>